This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. What is the world like today for the people who are frequently shocked, challenged and been at the forefront of changes that many see as outrageous? Are the rainbow people still changing their world for the better? I'm Malcolm Angus. Welcome to Outrageous, the program that investigates, supports and advocates for the rainbow people of New Zealand. Good day, listeners, once again to Outrageous with Malcolm Angus. Um, Last week, I had the pleasure of reintroducing Ingrid Leary, um, who was a successful candidate in the last elections, and Ingrid is in town, in the studio, giving her valuable time to you and me, and I want to welcome her back. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, Ingrid, we started chatting about the issues, I suppose, that um, uh, have become important to you, the issues you are now working on as an MP. And we um, began talking about rural banking. We segued into um, aged care. And then you started uh, talking about agriculture and farming because I had made the comment that it seemed to me that the shrinking towns um, were not going to be improved by the withdrawal of banking services. And we had um, talked about a particular solution that you were working on, which was a banking hub, was it? Or a banking uh, it's really um, an inquiry, sorry, a briefing from yep. the... Uh, New Zealand Bankers Association as to how those hubs are working out. Are yes. they the They already answer? exist. There, there are four of them being piloted around New Zealand, right. so I want to know what, what we're learning from those pilots, yeah. whether they're going to be rolled out in towns like Belclutha, for example, mm. and will there remain equity issues that still need to be resolved that the hubs can't resolve, and you know, what are we going to do to make sure everybody has access? Right. And I mentioned that I happen to be on the Belclutha Museum Committee, uh, which is a fantastic committee. And the Belclutha Museum um, is not well known enough. Um, It's a wonderful museum. I discovered something very interesting, which I just want to talk about being, um, this is also about the rainbow community, that they have part of their exhibition, they have a photograph and some works from what was the Belclutha School of Fine Arts back in the 1900s which was started by um, somebody who's called Mr Bobby I won't give the full name Um, and there's a photograph of this person with two students and Mr Bobby eventually um, was discovered I'm not sure or revealed um, to be a woman Um, So there's a whole story there that I think needs to be explored because the museum simply says that this is the situation and nobody knows any more than that. We have the photograph, we have the piece of uh, wood carving, which is fantastic, and here's another little um, story that um, the Balclutha Museum contains. I am aware apparently it was a scandal at the time when it was discovered that this person was a woman and I thought wouldn't it make a fabulous movie to revisit that story and the sensibility and what happened. Yes, and how Mr Bobby came to be in Balclutha in the first place. Absolutely. And had the guts 
to start a fine arts school and be there on the main street teaching. Um, whoever he or she was, I just think it's wonderful. And you know those little museums, they've got one in Lawrence, um, they've got one in Belclutha, I've been to one in Middlemarch. When we look at southern tourism and we hear a lot about Queenstown, I would like to actually see uh, an offer of southern tourism that links up those small heritage museums and provide some kind of transport, whether it's cycling or rail or some way that you could maybe fly into Queenstown, go around those museums and fly out of Dunedin or the other way around. I think we need to be making the most of those fantastic little uh, community-run, often, mm. uh, museums. They, mm. they contain so much history. Yep. And, for example, in the Middle March one, when you look at the names of the people uh, who are featured and the families that are featured, they're still some of the main families in that township, and they're still contributing by running the local AMP shows and so on. Yes. So um, the, the history is incredibly rich and mm. feels very recent as well. Mm. Well, some of the exhibits in this museum are amazing, interesting, completely unknown to me. I'm learning a lot by becoming a committee member. Um, the, the entire building needs to be um, raised to the ground and rebuilt, and so funding is, is on the um, business plan, getting funding for that. Um, and one of the um, plans the committee has been um, just... Um, talking about at this stage, talking about is having um, what we're going to call an antiques discovery day where people can bring their own antiques and we will have experts there who can talk to them about their antiques. Fantastic. So, a little bit like the TV show. Yes, and but I'm we're wondering, not allowed to name it that. Right. <laughs> I'm wondering actually how many will come from Ben Ha because, mm-hmm. you know, just down the road is Ben Ha with the um, incredible history of the porcelain factory. Yes. Uh, and, and I, I believe they specialised in toilet seats, actually. Yes. Well, the Balclutha Museum has part of their um, output yes. <laughs> on show. But it has, it has buggies and tractors and it has amazingly huge amounts of, of machinery there, um, as well as the small items from old schools, chemist shops, what you would expect. Um, it is, even has a beautiful miniature font made in blue and white china, which was a travelling font taken around by a minister so he could do baptisms in this miniature font. Amazing. Yes, yes. I, I, and I understand um, it is a great building, actually. I do mm. I do hope that when you get your new one, there's a little bit more heating in there. That was more all heating. I noticed. Yes, <laughs> we, um, we're, we've, we're trying to put some security cameras in and um, I, I went to the last board meeting to talk about um, security, and I said, well, we can buy this and this and this. All we need is some PowerPoints. And they said, there's no PowerPoints, and those that we do have, we wouldn't want to use. Idea. <laughs> so, yes, there are things to be done. Anyway, coming back on track to, to you and your work, which has now become your life's work, I think, um, the, the issues you're talking about. Now... In a general sense, I was aware that during the campaigning for the election, it was though the Labour Party was not interested in the agriculture and the farming um, of New Zealand. But you've already introduced that you are talking to the farmers. 
Oh, I don't. I don't think it's fair to say we're not interested. We absolutely are interested, mm. and we have hewaka ikanoa, which means we're all in this together. To when when I said that you're not interested, that seemed to be the opposition's take on the Labour Party that yeah. agriculture and farming was um, not a priority for the Labour what, Party. What we're really clear about is that we have a. a climate constrained future and we have to get to our zero carbon uh, goal and we need to move from volume through to value in our food production and we need to work with our farmers and we all need to do this collectively so how do we go from a very volume orientated farming situation which was wreaking havoc on our rivers and our and our environment into something where we can add value uh, and have smaller levels of production, and but still be a food producer with food security, not only for New Zealand but for other parts of the world. I think, and you've said that you've started meeting with the Farmers Association, is that right? That's right. I had a meeting with Fed Farmers. I mean, I met with them all through the campaign. They've been great in reaching out. Met with them again with my colleague Rachel Brooking uh, recently, and I've also met with the President in Wellington and with a group of the other backbench um new rural members and that's really about sharing ideas looking at um, what the common experiences are in the rural sectors so that we can be that bridge to the ministers and also feedback to the community so that we really have a constructive dialogue. In the past sometimes it has been quite positional and we see an opportunity with the mandate we've been given to to um, recreate some of the relationships and really, really live and breathe Hewaka Ikanoa. We are in this together. We face climate change together. Um, the farmers do an incredible job as one of the backbones of our economic system, and we need to really support them moving into this new carbon neutral future that we will all be in together. It, it's change, it's, in, it's change that is, in a sense, being imposed upon the world. Um, through global warming um, and change is difficult it's always difficult people um, in many ways have worked really hard to get to where they are and suddenly they're being told no you can no longer do it that way and um, perhaps for many years they were told that was the way to do it that was the way to economic growth that was the way absolutely they were and 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 that were encouraged to be like that's right and ministry of primary industries that was the focus was about volume and there was huge pressure on the farmers Mm. so it is a it's a culture change and it's a mind change but we also have to change the structures in order to support the culture change um, and we have to take farmers with us mm. we have to try and take the pressure off in terms of the timing of some of the changes mm. but climate change isn't waiting for anybody so no. there is an urgency to it that's unavoidable um, and you know that the, the, the farmers are under huge pressure we've heard a lot about their well-being about their mental health mm. what we do know is that um, you know we need to be supportive we need to be in dialogue and we need to make sure that when we're talking about well-being it applies across New Zealand to the rural sector as well and you, of course now you've brought in the issue of mental health rural mental health I think in general is a is a now um, a known issue um, an accepted issue the solutions, I don't think, are in place yet. Um, people are looking for ways to do something, but again, it's an area that is under-resourced, I believe, in terms of professional skills. 
that can be moved into the rural areas to help people. The professional skills in mental health tend to be centralised. We've we've got a a shortage of mental health counsellors and so on generally, and they are one of the areas where we have fees-free training. So what the government has tried to do is look at where our gaps are, which are around mental health construction, engineering, infrastructure, and provide a, a pipeline of graduates or apprenticeships into those areas. So that's where the fees-free training uh, opportunities are at the new Polytechnic uh, and through the apprenticeships programs. So there will be a little bit of a lag as we try to upskill people, but what we're hoping is that in the medium term we will have a constant supply of people provided in our own communities who can then fill in those places rather than having to import people through immigration mm. uh, to fill those skills. Mm. But can I say also that um, when we look at um, change and taking people with you, you know, one of the other big areas that I've been focused on is continuing the work that Claire Curran did around South Dunedin's housing situation and what the future will look like in a climate change environment. And people in South Dunedin were told several years ago through some some of the reports that were done that they would be full retreat and that the whole communities would be dislocated and moved from South Dunedin. Subsequently, there's been a GNS report that says um, the situation is, while while there is urgency, that it is manageable and that with the right approach, people can stay. There might be a little bit of retreat, but we can probably have our communities stay living there. And you would know as well as I do that many of our disabled communities live there because they choose to. They like the flats, they like the the access, and of course it's their own communities where many of them have grown up. So I'm really keen to see a climate change adaptation approach to South Dunedin, and I've been doing a lot of work in that area. I was lucky enough to have David Parker, Minister David Parker, come down, who's the Minister for the Environment, and come and meet with all the key stakeholders, including the South Dunedin Community Network, but also with the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Regional Council and the racecourse people and others. And um, I think we're going to get some progress there. I think there is some buy-in from government. Is this the racecourse that was going to be um, become an island? Uh, that was on April Fool's Day. I was delighted that the ODT chose to put its focus on South Dunedin. That was good to see. It was slightly facetious, but it still well, put a spotlight I, on the what issue. What I liked about it was it, it's a bit like when you go into a brainstorming session and nothing is off the table. You can actually put the most absurd ideas forward because they prompt something else. They prompt a new way of looking at things. Absolutely. Last night somebody said to me it would be good to have some kind of adventure park there. I mean, you know, everything is on the, on the table. Mm-hmm. What we are clear about is that uh, it was a wetlands area where the race course was, so mm-hmm. we need to work with the natural environment. But there is cutting-edge architecture and innovation available where we could maybe get some housing solutions. That's what I'd like to see is some affordable... Uh, but very green, new, leading-edge housing, uh, potentially able to be dismantled and relocated should the need arise. And I think that we need to uh, we need to really take a stand and say that in 100 years, for example, maybe the sea rise level will be a metre. We need to, mm. to, to draw mm. a line somewhere mm. because we can't keep doing reports and climate change will keep changing and we'll need to adapt those reports. 
What I do know is we're going to spend a lot of money on South Dunedin, whether it's by responding to incidents like the floods that we had in 2015, or whether it's front-footing this through some innovation and creativity and a whole-of-community approach. And I would like to see the latter. Mm. I think there's an appetite from government, and what we really need now is to um, to see some enthusiasm from the local councils and a common vision that we can all get behind so that I can do my job, which is to get the support that we need from government, either in terms of some additional funding or some wraparound um, support around the legislation, fast-tracking processes or ways to get people into home ownership. Mm. Look, the world is full of um, domestic housing solutions from the Marsh Arabs, um, from people who live on pole houses in Asia um, and uh, a number of the tropical islands. Um, I think we have to abandon the Western model of building as the only way to do it and look at alternative housing, which is already exists and people enjoy overseas. And it suits, it suits the environment in which they are in instead of trying to make the environment suit the house. Absolutely. And that's the critical part, is look at what is naturally there. It was mm. a wetland. Let's, mm. let's start with that premise. Mm. And the people that are interested in developing this, that is where they're starting from. Mm. Um, so looking at the natural environment, not fighting nature, but also not relocating communities of people who have long histories of living mm. there mm. and have had to deal with great anxiety, not only from... Uh, dealing with floods, but the uncertainty over their future. Dunedin, South Dunedin, is a fantastic place to live, and what we have here is a fantastic opportunity, and we, we, we shouldn't be thinking of this as a problem. This is actually an opportunity to do something world-leading that nobody's done before, and I'm really keen to see that happen. Wonderful. So am I. <laughs> I think it needs to happen. And New Zealand has been at the forefront, often, on new ideas. Certainly. And there's no need for it to suddenly say, well, we have to wait and see what the rest of the world is doing. I think staying on the front foot is wonderful and New Zealanders have the skills, the ability and the creative urges to find those solutions. That's right. And we and we don't need any more reports. I think um, there are four or five pieces of work going on around South Dunedin that are involved with water. Some of them is around piping from Kaikarau Valley. Some of it is around the sand dunes, which is our biggest natural barrier along St Kilda. Um, what we do need is a systems approach. So we look at that um, from a helicopter view. We know that when you tweak one thing, you end up tweaking the others. So let's be systematic about mm, it mm. and let's th throw the ball out a hundred years and say, what would we like this to look like in a hundred years and what's it likely to look like and then work backwards to how we do things. What hasn't worked in the past is the piecemeal approach and that has actually resulted in, for example, the contamination of those sand dunes that we currently have at St Kilda. Can I just say, because I've been reading about it recently, that sand, the actual useful sand in the world is running out. Um, you cannot use desert sand for, for instance, concrete. Um, in fact, uh, amazingly, sand from Australia was taken to Dubai for making concrete because the sand particles in the desert have been so smoothed off that they are no use at all in concrete making. So our sand is far more valuable than I think we 
actually believe. And for it simply to be continuously used as well for building, um, we're going to run out. And again, it's another environmental issue that isn't at the front of anyone's mind. Why should it be? Because we think the world is full of deserts and the, <laughs> the sand is there, but it's not sand that can be built used for building. So just another issue that um, we're learning about as human beings. And Dubai fell into this trap because, of course, it started building these massive offshore islands and uh, was having to import sand. They couldn't use their desert sand for that. So um, I, I just find you know, all these issues, suddenly I, I find I'm reading and I'm astounded that these things are happening and I don't know about it. The common uh, denominator, I think, being that people are not working with the environments, the natural mm. environment. It's mm. the same with slow food and fast food, you know. Mm. Let's eat the food that's around us at the time yep. rather than importing food that's coming from thousands yes. of kilometres away. And for goodness sakes, let's stop buying food that has to be perfect in shape or colour. <sighs> That just depresses me. I'm quite happy to find something um, askew with my apples, and the banana doesn't have to be a banana shape. <laughs> and the oranges can have a bit of hard skin on them. It doesn't matter, you know. We need to accept that buyers don't need to buy perfect-looking food. I'd prefer to find fruit and vegetables that tastes good not looks good. That's right. I, I remember when I lived in Australia briefly and the fruit looked amazing, but I always found that it lacked a little bit of flavour. Mm. And I found out they were growing most of it hydroponically and, mm. and uh, rapidly, so they had mm. a lot of water content, but, mm. but you didn't have the beautiful flavours that you no. get from your own garden. And if you go to Italy or Spain or, or perhaps France and you eat the tomatoes there, you are experiencing a totally different vegetable. I fell in love with tomatoes in Italy. I yes. hadn't eaten tomatoes my whole life. Yep. When I was 27 on my trip to Italy, I discovered tomatoes, and I actually ended up writing a poem about tomatoes. I don't know where it is now. Mm. But I made sure I had tomatoes just about every meal. I could not believe how beautiful they were. Yes. Ingrid Leary is my guest today, and um, we, we, I wanted Ingrid to come back, having um, won a place in Parliament, to talk about that. But we have found many other things to talk about as well. And I'm pleased to have had this chat with Ingrid, who remains, just as I found her the first time, absolutely committed to improving the lot of all New Zealanders, not just people that she may live amongst and represent in the electorate. But she sees the big picture. She sees that what might be happening here will have a benefit across New Zealand. And in the end, hopefully it will influence the world in a better way as well. New Zealand has that capacity to do that. And Ingrid is that sort of person, I believe, um, to have that vision um, and to have the big picture as well as work on the minutiae of the individual problems that we all experience. Well, that's very kind of you, Malcolm. Um, thank you so much. But just to also say that, you know, people have said to me, when you get into Parliament, it's a privilege. It is absolutely a privilege. Uh, every day I'm reminded of what a privilege it is. Um, it's an incredible experience. Um, thank you so much and um, visitors I hope you've enjoyed the chat I have I'm just sorry that um, 
Ingrid is so busy that it'll probably be another nine months before we get to see her again or, or listen to her. Ingrid, I'm so pleased you came in. Thank you so much for your time. I really value it. Thank you. See you soon. Okay. That's it, listeners, from me on Outrageous 105.4 FM. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this chat, and um, we have so much more to talk about next week, and I will be back on air again. Thank you, and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.